Welcome to the Don't Overthink It podcast, where we talk about all things without trying to overthink it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. All right, Dr. Jackson, curious, how are you doing today? Well, Dr. Heath, I'm doing well. I, uh, I've enjoyed our two weeks of writing, and one of them, I think, leads uh, to, to your area of expertise. I know that you teach uh, descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive statistics. And in, in thinking about poverty, uh, I think that it's easy to describe it, and I think that it's fairly easy to predict it. Uh, but we've seen absolutely unable to do anything prescriptive about it. So I was curious, what, what's your take on uh, the, the sort of ability to actually make use of prescriptive statistics in anything that is related to human behavior? Yeah, that's quite a, a, big, a big problem and a big challenging area. So I think, you know, descriptive statistics is obviously talking about the past, you're sort of describing what happened, right? So it's pretty straightforward. You're basically just consuming data and information and saying, here, here's what happened, right? And that's mostly what you see when any articles out there about poverty. You, we all see the stats. We know what's going on. Predictive is trying to look a little bit into the future. It requires a little bit of understanding about the system, but not really. You just sort of say, well, if these trends keep continuing, you know, poverty will keep growing a certain way. So it's interesting to know that that it's this is what the forecast looks like, but it doesn't necessarily help you get around or solving poverty unless it's like trending to zero, which I think generally like most people would agree it doesn't seem to be doing that. So when you get into like the prescriptive space, really now the biggest flip that you have to make is saying, instead of just assuming the data exists and then just slapping a model on top of it and projecting it out to the future, you actually have to begin to model the system as it actually functions. So to model something, you actually have to try to understand it. And that's where I think the poverty angle becomes really challenging because there are so many factors that can get into what causes poverty at a macro level in terms of just system, systemic issues, uh, behaviors. And then we get down into individual levels. There's like individual things that could just knock you into poverty, right? It could be, you know, uh, you get hit by a hurricane and your house gets destroyed. And now, uh, or you lose your job and now you're in poverty. So there's all these like macro and micro elements that cause this to happen. And ideally to get into a prescriptive space to say, okay, we want to solve poverty. You kind of have to understand all those dynamics and how they interact and work together. And that is an extremely challenging problem given the scope of this. And uh, not saying that we shouldn't try to go after it and figure it out. But I do think that it's an extremely challenging element that is also, I think, deeply, uh, once you start trying to understand things, you start realizing that there isn't a straightforward perspective. So you start getting into like political angles of uh, conservative versus progressive sort of views on how to solve things. Um, and those may actually skew your understanding of how the system goes. And you may bring a little bit of that baggage of your life and what you sort of believe to the table, which also makes it a little bit more convoluted. So, so. so I'm interested, I'm, I'm interested in the, the notion of, and I agree that there, there's a host of conceptual problems getting to the, the prescriptive modeling of it. 
but but let's assume that we can do those things, right? Let's assume that we can actually develop a very robust model that describes any, any social issue, right? Whether it's defense spending or poverty, uh, wh whatever the case may be, any of the social issues. We have a relatively perfect model that, that we, we can articulate what needs to be done. Do you think that we live in a society in which that model would be given any weight politically, rhetorically, and that the, the political solution that would get enacted would bear sufficient resemblance to the solution generated in the model that we could test if it had any effect? I think the short answer is I can't imagine the pure model. Let's say we have the pure model and we represent it. I can't imagine it being implemented in a pure form. Uh, one, because it's going to be innately very complicated and require a lot of understanding, like things that most people are not going to even be aware of, right? So there have to be a lot of trust put in this thing. There's only maybe, you know, a select part of the population who even understand what it meant. Uh, and ultimately, part of this is getting other people to agree and understand how it should function. So you kind of get into this technocratic sort of view uh, versus a more practical view of, of the world where like the technocratic perspective is that put all the experts in the room, let them make choices and, and execute things. But sometimes uh, that results in a lot of segmentation and it's really impossible for everyone to know everything. And so when you get into that realm, I'd see it being really hard time for people to be able to fully sort of grok the solution and what it meant. And therefore I can only imagine that it would get watered down, adjusted. And, and you know, I think for example, I think like uh, the Affordable Care Act is like, uh, that my understanding is somewhere around like 20,000 pages of policies. Uh, that sounds like a very technocratic thing. I can only imagine like the poverty or defense spending model would be equivalently big, if not 10 times bigger than that. How do you communicate that to a broad audience who doesn't one have time to read it and two doesn't, you know, maybe care that much about it? Right. I, I think um, even if we ratcheted it down and said not looking at uh, societal issues like poverty or defense spending, but if, if we were just then looking within an organization, I find I find the application potential of a prescriptive model uh, for implementation, even within a smaller confine of an organization is, is problematic. So the, the predictive and prescriptive, I think analysts gravitate towards it because it's, it's fun to sort of build com complex models and, and see how close reality unfolds to a, a prediction. But I, I find myself gravitating more and more to descriptive statistics, just trying to establish, you know, can, can we even come to agreement on what the facts of the situation are? And, and I don't know, I, I don't know that the human inclinations really allow organizations to move much beyond descriptive statistics. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do think it's an interesting angle. I, I do think most of the time we spend it in descriptive, but then a lot of the pop analytics sort of view in business and organization is that predictive and prescriptive is where the money is. But then when you go and look inside, it's like, well, all they're really doing is looking at history and looking at what data they've collected. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of, I think, value that I found as I've sort of continued through life is reflecting on myself. And that's sort of like a little bit of descriptive of like, who am I? What do I do? Why am I here? 
sort of questions. I wonder if that's some element of the organizational experience of focusing on descriptive. Uh, but even coming to, once you start doing that, you start realizing that even your moment of where you're at right now, you may not even have an agreement inside internally. And so I can see that reflected within the organization of not really knowing where they stand, what things are true, what things are not true. From a pure mathematical perspective, we can't prove that anything is true. So when you start going down those sort of philosophical angles, I think it gets interesting. And I think it probably provides some perspective on maybe why we spend so much time this trying to agree on where we're at. And maybe that's the biggest struggle. Uh, maybe this, you know, I kind of see that as when you look at poverty, like maybe there's just not a general agreement on what poverty is or how much it is existing. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you, your reflection aspect sort of made me think of the role of narrative and, and that, you know, how people understand themselves, how people understand the um, situation within the organization is 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 largely narrative, not empirical, right? That that the the story, the arc of the story, uh, can sort of exist independent of the facts. There, there's an old movie uh, called "The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance," and and the the tagline of the movie is, uh, "When the legend becomes fact, print the legend," right? So it's it's sort of you know th there's talk about living in a post fact society. And, and what does that mean? And, you know, I think, how do, how do analysts go about confronting the gap between the narrative understanding and the empirical understanding? Yeah, there's definitely, I think, probably elements of when we think about within organizations, the sort of legend, right? So of, and maybe it maybe gets wrapped up into like the culture of a company in some fashion or a culture of an organization or a belief system sort of aligning to this needing to tell maybe a coherent story. Maybe that's where the legend comes from, or maybe that's the need for the legend or the need for the myth is to be able to tell a coherent story when maybe we don't even have all the facts or come to a point where we can't even arrive at what those facts are in agreement, but we can agree that this story seems to make sense. And a lot of our human existence is, narrative and telling stories and how effective those are. I don't know if that adds on anything. <laughs> I yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it does. So I'd be interested if you could tell me a story. So I I'm interested in all the utensils in the drawer, but it, it seems like you're especially interested in forks. So could, could you tell me a story about forks and, and sort of what its implication is for organizational dynamics? Yeah. Yes. Thank you for uh, referencing uh, an article I wrote a few weeks ago on the called the fork at the bottom of the drawer. So my wife and I were having uh, we're, we're going to have some ice cream. So we we're going to sell. I don't know what we just wanted to have some ice cream for the end. So of the let day. me let me just ask one question. I yes. hope I hope that you're not saying that you eat ice cream with a fork. I'm definitely not. OK, uh, so this this story is really about spoons. Well, it starts off about spoons. But um, it ends up being about forks. All right. It doesn't really matter. Spoons, forks, it could be the same thing. It's about utensils. So we're getting some ice cream. And we were talking, we have two types of spoons. We have big spoons and little spoons. And OFS, do you want, or I asked my wife, do you want the big spoon or the small spoon? And she's like, you choose. And I was like, I'm going to pick the small spoon because the small spoon never gets used. And I felt bad for the small spoons. But then I started thinking about another experience I had where, um, for whatever reason, I had some forks in my hand and I went outside for something 
And I was like, these forks have never seen the outside world. And the thing that this must be a great experience for these forks. Anyway, so I started thinking more about what this like could potentially mean about forks in life and how things work. So I came up with this idea that there's these forks at the bottom of the drawer. So we have a stack of a bunch of forks in, in the drawer with all the silverware that. And if you eat, uh, you know, and do this just very regular, you're going to take the, the fork off the top, you'll use it and you'll put it in the dishwasher. And then maybe a few days later, you'll clean it and then you'll put those forks back on the top. So the top, the top forks always stay at the top and then the bottom forks sort of always stay at the bottom. And so it's, if you think of the, the value of forks, though, like even the fork at the bottom, is still a fork. It still does its function, but the one at the top is getting used all the time. So in an organizational concept, you may be the top fork where you're just being called upon all the time. You're asked to do things. You may attach your worth and your value to that. But the fork at the bottom isn't at the bottom because they're a lesser fork. They are still an equivalently equally in good fork. They just happen to get a random toss of, uh, of, of life and ended up at the bottom. And then at any moment in time, though, let's say Thanksgiving comes around and your whole family comes over and use a, you end up using all the forks, including the bottom fork. And now you sort of introduced a whole new dynamic where now that bottom fork could be a top fork. But then by the nature of forks and how we use them, now the top fork is now at the bottom. And so um, and then that top fork that used to be a bottom fork could remain at the top for months or years, depending on how often you do your dishes. So this creates an interesting sort of system by dynamic that I think we see a lot of times in our society. And I think it has a relation to poverty. And sometimes, you know, you don't necessarily choose the lot in life you get, you get in the beginning. Um, and you may consider yourself a bottom fork or a top fork. But I think if you're at the top fork, you shouldn't look down upon the bottom forks. It wasn't like it was necessarily their call to be a bottom fork. And if you're a bottom fork, doesn't mean that you have any less worth than the top forks. But the nature of the system of how forks work, there's always going to be a top and a bottom sort of scenario. But maybe you should reconsider how you organize your drawer. And maybe that's something of interest when we talk about the poverty angle of things. Yeah, I think um, so as you were talking and and I, I've read your fork article twice uh, and it this literally just popped on me. But the bottom fork is is sort of the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer of, of forks, right? You know, there, there was a moment uh, when, when uh, Rudolph went from the, the bottom fork position to the top fork position, and, and we celebrate uh, that story culturally. So, you know, the, the metaphor of, of being at the bottom position, uh, I think the, the, the key is to recognize and capitalize on opportunity if it presents itself. And, and you know, maybe ideally as a, as a society, we could uh, build wider drawers that allow for less densely packed forks. And uh, instead of being uh, the bottom of 12 forks, you're only the bottom of three forks and uh, you can see the daylight. Yeah, I had a, um, I think the the wide fork thing is interesting uh, dynamic for us to consider. And it's definitely something we've talked about predictive and prescriptive, that sort of angles. But I had an interesting experience yesterday. I was buying some shoes. So winter is coming. And I was at the shoe store looking at some boots and the person working there um, came up and was, you know, helpful to a certain level, but they were lacing up the shoes for me because they said it's part of what their job is to do and they get paid to lace up the shoes. I was happy to lace them up, but they wanted to do it. Uh, it seemed like they weren't like super thrilled about it, but they were like, you know, helpful. 
And then they, uh, while I was trying on the shoes, they asked me, so what do you do? And I thought I was kind of taken aback by that question because I've never had anyone in any sort of retail environment ask me like what I do. And I think probably maybe it's more common in the U.S. than maybe in other cultures, but or other countries. Well, I'm excited because I have no idea what you do. So I, I'm hopeful, <laughs> hopeful this story also reveals what it is that you do. Well, I just sort of said, you know, I do analytic stuff and, and they were, and they went back and forth and they're like, they kind of got my sense of hesitancy. And they said to me that the reason why they, they're, they're forced to ask this question, they're told by management to ask this question as part of getting to know the customer. But I could tell that their heart wasn't really in it. And as a result, it just felt like they were intruding upon my personal space. It felt kind of odd. I felt bad for them for having to ask this awkward question to me. And so it made me think a little bit about, was this person maybe doing the minimum? You know, like they weren't super engaged. They were just doing the bare minimum. And so that gets me to think of some of our discussion about quiet quitting, but sort of my consumer experience about quiet quitting um, was interesting, sort of like, what does that look like? And I'm curious, like how you think about on the consumer side, what is it, what do you think the dynamic looks like as people maybe in the retail space or other sort of spaces where we're interacting with these people who have quietly quit? Do you think my experience was sort of in a way odd and I felt bad for them as a, but I respected them as a human. And so I kind of got what they were doing. And I went through the motions, but I'm curious if you've had similar experiences or what you think about, like, do you think this will be like an endemic that goes across a pandemic that goes across the United States is quiet quitting takes off. Well, Dr. Heath, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question I, and I don't know the answer. I mean, we've known each other for over a decade, I think. Um, but I, I don't know the answer to this question. Have, have you ever seen a junior high play? <sighs> junior high. Can't say I have, I don't think I have. Okay, so one of the things that they have in common uh, is that they're almost always terrible. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to fathom how little aptitude the standard junior high student has towards uh, conveying any thought or emotion convincingly on the stage. Of course, there's exceptions, but by and large, uh, it, it's devoid of quality. So I think one of the issues is, is that anytime somebody's provided with a script, uh, that one of two things happen. Either they execute the script and their, their focus is on executing the script, or they try to get the emotional content of the script and then convey that authentically. Uh, I, I think that a lot of people in work uh, are given scripts, whether they're explicitly given scripts like the people uh, at the shoe store or whether they're sort of implicit scripts uh, and, and that it, it seems really phony when, when people don't internalize what it is that's at the heart of the script and they just read the lines, right? So if, if the intent of the shoe salesman is to make a personal connection and the script is what do you do for a living uh, there, there's an interesting dynamic is that a, is that a requirement from the organization they have to ask this question or is it you should try to establish a connection and here's an example of something you could say to do it and and those are radically different directions and they they allow for very different levels of personal investment and authenticity but 
The broader issue is I find it fascinating that at this time of the year, you're buying boots and not sandals. This is the time of the year to buy the remnants of what they're getting rid of, not uh, not new boots, Brian. Yeah, I, I, was, I was aware of the situation that this was not the ideal time, but I also in part fall into the trap of if it's not an, an urgent need, then I tend to forget about it. And sometimes long-term planning becomes a struggle. I mean, you, you you can get the bottom fork equivalent of sandals right now, uh, 20 for a dollar. Yeah, but also you may um, not get the latest and greatest sandal, which I'm sure over the thousands of years that sandals have existed, that next year's will be the pinnacle of sandal creation. They're, they're, they're due to achieve the, the ultimate position. I, I agree. Yes. I think the... You know, some of the dynamic, I guess, connecting it to some of like the prescriptive element of things. If I was better at planning and thinking ahead about things that were important to me in terms of like my shoes, for example, then I maybe would have bought boots at the end of at the end of the winter, as opposed to at the beginning of winter. And I just it maybe speaks a little bit to the narrative of what humans are good at thinking about and what humans are not so great about doing. I, I, I would like to, to add that um, I'm a big fan of Doc Martin. So if they're looking to uh, get involved with Don't Overthink This, I, I could espouse the, the, the many wonderful benefits that come from Doc Martin uh, boots. Yeah. Uh, also, I know that you're a fan of uh, Birkenstocks as well. Like it's yes. sort of your, your go-to, your go-to shoe. Well, you, you can set your clock by when I switch from my uh, Birkenstock clogs to my Doc Martin boots. So it's uh, we're not there yet. I'm still uh, I'm still in the clog phase of uh, of the season, but we're we're weeks away from the transition. Well, I think that sounds like a good sort of uh, stopping point for today. And really, we went kind of all over the place, but I do see there being a thread here. So. Any final, any final uh, words, Dr. Jackson? It's always great talking to you, Dr. Heath. I'll yeah. talk to you in a fortnight. Yep, I'll talk to you in a few weeks and maybe I'll give you an update on my uh, sandal purchasing activities. I can hardly wait. Right, and if you like this sort of dialogue and these sorts of ideas and thoughts, come join us over at thoughtoverthinkthis.net. If you have any questions or other things you wanna ask us, uh, or other points you want to make, feel free to email us at info at don't overthink us.net. Great. Well, thanks everyone. And I'll, and we'll talk to you later.